0: Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number three, Leviticus chapter one. We spent uh, the first two weeks of our study of Leviticus simply kind of preparing the background and and laying this groundwork to make Leviticus a lot more understandable and enjoyable and hopefully meaningful, Um, I would like to reiterate from an earlier lesson a few principles that we need to keep in mind as we move along. First, God divides, elects, and separates. That is, Jehovah draws very strict boundaries, and makes hard and fast distinctions among people and nations and worship practices, he is not at all tolerant of evil and sin. He reserves unto himself the exclusive right to pronounce which is which. He excludes those who are not his people. And at the time of Leviticus, his people are only the people of Israel. Second of all, Leviticus offers us the priestly worldview. It is written through the eyes of God's newly ordered group of priests who come exclusively from the tribe of Levi. (coughs) Third, we learn that God classifies sins in... Two basic categories, intentional and unintentional. This is quite different from the typical way we humans want to think of sin, which is more along the lines of big or little. Trivial or terrible. Inconsequential or salvation-threatening. Fourth, the sacrificial system that we are about to study does not deal with intentional sins. And therefore, it does not provide a means of reconciliation with God for deliberate sinning. It deals only with unintentional sins. Nothing we will read about in Leviticus will reconcile the offender with God if that offender's sin is considered high-handed or great, which is Bible-speak for Intentional. Fifth, the sacrificial system is about more than just atoning for sin. We're going to see that several of the God-ordained sacrifices have very little relationship directly to sin as in the form of committing bad behaviors. Sixth, While Yeshua indeed fulfilled the sacrificial system, he fulfilled much more than the rather limited abilities of the sacrificial system to atone for a certain category of sins. And seventh, the foundational principle behind the Levitical sacrificial system was substitution. Okay. that is the deaths of animals were going to take the place of they were going to substitute for what rightly should have been the deaths of the humans who were guilty of sinning against Jehovah and eighth, Leviticus is the middle book right, in the book series of Exodus, Leviticus and Numbers we need to read Leviticus as though it's just this continuation of Exodus, which eventually then rolls right on into Numbers. So, let's start off tonight and read Leviticus 1, all of the chapter. Leviticus chapter 1. Follow along with me in your Bibles. Adonai called to Moshe, spoke to him from the tent of meeting, and he said, Speak to the people of Israel. Say to them, when any of you brings an offering to Adonai, you may bring your animal offering either from the herd or the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he must offer a male without defect. He is to bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting so that it can be accepted by Adonai. He is to lay his hand upon the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. He is to slaughter the young bull before Adonai, and the sons of Aharon, the Kohanim, Aaron the priest, are to present the blood. They're to splash the blood against all sides of the altar, which is by the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The descendants of Aharon, the Kohan, are to put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. The sons of Aharon, the Kohan, are to arrange the pieces, the head, and the fat of the wood uh the fat on the wood which is on the fire of the altar. He is to wash the entrails and lower parts of the legs with water, and the cohen is to cause all of it to go up in smoke on the altar, as a burnt offering. It's an offering made by fire. It's a fragrant aroma to Adonai. If his offering is from the flock, whether from the sheep or from the goats, for a burnt offering he must offer a male without defect. He is to slaughter it on the north side of the altar before Adonai, and the sons of Aaron, the priests, are to splash its blood against all sides of the altar. He's to cut it into pieces, and the priest is to arrange them with the head and the fat on the wood which is on the fire on the altar. He is to wash the entrails and lower parts of the legs with water. And the Cohen is to offer it all. Make it all go up in smoke on the altar as a burnt offering. It is an offering made by fire, a fragrant aroma for Adonai. If his offering to Adonai is a burnt offering of birds, he must offer a dove or a young pigeon. The priest is to bring it to the altar, snap off its head, and make it go up in smoke on the altar. Its blood is to be drained out on the side of the altar. He is to remove the food pouch and its feathers from its neck and discard it on the pile of ashes just east of the altar. He is to pull it open with a wing on each side, but without tearing it in half. The Cohen is to make it go up in smoke on the altar, on the wood which is on the fire, as a burnt offering. It is an offering made by fire, a fragrant aroma for Adonai. Well, the first words of Leviticus, "Now he called," are in Hebrew, Vaikra, and Vaikra means, well, it's the name that the Hebrews give to this book that Gentiles call by its Greek name, Leviticus. Now, though these first few words, now he called, sound kind of quaint and ordinary to us. They carry a, a weighty meaning that's important for us to grasp as we go forward. Jehovah is about to make some very formal, very important pronouncements. And just as when our president might occasionally make a speech from his desk in the Oval Office, we understand that what is about to come carries with it more importance and more, sig- more significance than just a regular news conference or an interview. We know that when it happens from the Oval Office, it's a special event. So it is here. It's a special event. Okay. The protocol here at the opening of Leviticus is much like it was Back in Exodus, when Jehovah called to Moses from the summit of Mount Sinai in order to give Moses the law. But this time, Jehovah calls Moses to give him the all-important sacrificial system that would appease God's wrath at men when they offend God from violating the law. Now, allow me to repeat something that I said to you at our last meeting the sacrificial system and the law are the two primary components that together make up God's justice system. In Hebrew, mishpat. And that while in everyday common conversation, a Hebrew would usually call every element of God's justice system the law, with the sacrificial system just seen as part of the law, the way the sacrificial system and the law function. Make them somewhat separate. The law and the sacrificial system each have different functions, very different purposes. The law leads to punishment, but the sacrificial system leads to atonement, forgiveness, coupled with reconciliation with God. Now, the term, the law, has become very general over the centuries. So much so that it is widely misused and misunderstood even among Jews. All right? It is especially misused and wildly misused all right, within the Christian church. All right? I mean, let me explain. Even though we don't see God pronounce what can accurately be called the law until about halfway through the book of Exodus... Jews will often use the term the law as a synonym for the entire Torah. Okay? That is, they'll just call the entire first books, first five books of the Bible, the law, even though the law really isn't given until Exodus. In addition, we have to remember that often the Jewish people have this other law, right, taken from non-biblical sources such as the Talmud, that they will call from time to time, the law. So the the Jews might tend to call any and every religious instruction, whether from scripture or from rulings of their religious leaders, from their rabbis, the law. Now the law can be a very confusing term as a result. The best analogy I can think of for you is that in the church we have a lot of people walking around with only the New Testament in their hands. And sometimes a brand new Christian will even have only a little book with the four Gospels in it. And if we ask them, what are you holding? They'll say, the Bible. Right? Now, that really isn't accurate, is it? Since what they have is just a portion of the Bible. But we know what they mean, and they know what they mean. Okay? we'll also commonly hear a pastor or a minister, teacher, preach, and say that he's teaching the Bible. When more often than not, what he's actually teaching is a, a doctrine. Okay? A denominationally based church tradition that's said to represent a very important Bible principle. Okay? And in both of these cases, we, at least Gentile believers, who speak Christianese, all right, completely understand all right, what it is that they're saying. So we don't have a bone to pick with them, all right, even though technically it's not accurate. Okay? And this analogy is the same as it is with Jews when they use the term the law. It, it can mean any number of things, and we have to discern from the context what any particular usage of that term is referring to at the moment. And by the way, it works that way when you're reading the New Testament, too. Okay. Now, notice here in Leviticus, how God makes this formal separation between the law and the sacrificial system. Now, remember the importance of that little phrase, Now he called. Okay. It denotes this cardinal event that's about to happen. Something of great magnitude. We receive that same exact preamble from God as he instructed Moses to come up to Mount Sinai to receive the law. Now, in a separate event, Jehovah again pronounces this important preamble. Now he called. And this time God will give Moses the sacrificial system. So, first, back in in Exodus, God gives Moses the definition of sin, which is defined by and contained in the law, and the consequences for sinning by breaking any of the ordinances of that law code. Further, by giving of the law, the Lord has set out his moral choices for Israel. Moral choices that the wills of every Israelite will decide to obey or disobey. Now in Leviticus God is giving Moses the other part of his justice system. The part that provides for atonement. The part that provides for what happens when someone breaks the law and needs to get right with God. Of course As we now know, this atonement is only available for a certain class of sin. The unintentional sin. By the way, I'm going to remind you of this over and over again. Because it is primarily this attribute of the sacrificial system providing atonement only for sins that were not deliberate that causes Paul to characterize Christ's sacrifice as superior. And the sacrificial system portion of the law as inferior when you compare the two. Okay? Now verse 2 makes very clear one of the principles I enumerated for you just a few minutes ago. Jehovah is speaking to the Benai Yisra'el. He is speaking to Israel, who is his people. No one else at this time is his people. Now, the Old Testament is positively loaded with this Hebrew term or phrase, Benay Israel," which literally means the young of Israel. However, it is usually rendered the children of Israel in our Bibles. The meaning, however is probably best expressed in modern Western thinking as simply the Israelite people. All right. This expression is not meant to mean only the young, nor is it meant to indicate children, All right. nor is it meant to refer only to those with Jacob's blood in their veins, those that were genealogical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for thousands upon thousands of foreigners, Ger, G-E-R, already had and would continue to join up with Israel. night Israel is a national term. It refers to a group as a whole. In this case, it's an awful lot like saying the American people. Now with this stage set, that is, we know who is speaking now, Yehovah, where this is taking place, the wilderness tabernacle, and that God is uh, addressing himself to Moses and the nation of Israel, we are now given instruction on the first type of offering or sacrifice. Okay, This first type of offering we're going to discuss is the burnt offering. And in verse 2, when we're told if anyone brings an offering for Jehovah, the word used here for offering is korban. K-O-R-B-A-N. And this is a good word to memorize, because it is a common Hebrew word that means offering. Any offering. Any kind. It's like at church, where the term offering could mean anything from money to property to even personal time. Okay, and the offering could be for the general fund, it could be for something specific, okay, it could mean our regular tithe, it could mean something above it, just irregular giving, anything like that. So the korban is not the specific name for the specific class of sacrifice called a burnt offering. Each class of offering, each type of korban we encounter is going to have a very specific Hebrew name with a specific meaning. In the case of the burnt offering, it's called an Olah. O L A H. Olah. Olah. Okay. olah is the original Hebrew word that we almost universally translate to burnt offering. Okay. I'd like to get a little technical for a few minutes. The term burnt offering is what scholars call a functional definition or a functional translation. We're going to encounter a lot of these functional translations in the Torah. Okay? What that means is that it's not really a literal translation of those words because the Hebrew if you want a complete literal translation, it wouldn't mean anything to us. Okay. In fact, sometimes the literal translation isn't even really known or agreed upon by Bible scholars and translators. Literally Allah is thought to mean ascend, or perhaps go up, or even bring near. Right? So most literally it's thought that Allah would probably translate as a near offering or an ascend offering. That's so peculiar to our culture that the translators thought that it really serves no purpose to translate it that way. So instead of giving a literal translation of the word Allah, it was determined that it would be better to give the reader the function, the purpose of the word Allah. It was determined that it would be just Better all the way around than using a term like near-offering. Okay. And the function of the olah is as something that is burned up on a fire to the Lord. A burnt offering. So burnt offering is how it's translated. And that's not wrong. It just doesn't include the sense that by burning up the offering, it emits smoke. All right which brings it near to God by ascending up to Him in heaven. That's the point it's trying to get across. Okay? I'm not necessarily going to break down the names of every sacrifice to the tiniest detail like I just did with Allah. The burnt offering. I simply want you to understand what a functional translation is and that many times in the Bible we're going to get functional rather than literal translations of words. And there's nothing wrong about it. However, Sometimes we can get a lot more understanding if we'll also examine the original Hebrew word and just go ahead and translate it literally because it exposes that Hebrew mindset and the Middle Eastern culture of that era. It helps us to get a better idea, you know, just what was in those people's minds. What was the mental picture? of what it was they were doing when they were doing these things. okay? And in the case of the olah, the near offering, or the ascend offering, that we commonly refer to, and will often refer to as the bird offering, by looking at the word literally, we see that there's something special about the smoke. That's central to it. And where that smoke is going. And that is a key element of the effectiveness of that offering. And I'm going to show you why the smoke is so key in just a moment. The type of bird offering that we see here in Leviticus chapter 1 is what I would best term a personal offering. That is, this offering and the next several offerings we're going to study are made by individuals, private persons, on behalf of that person. Okay. this is opposed to later on in Leviticus when we're going to see special offerings and sacrifices including special kinds of bird offerings that are made on behalf of the whole nation of Israel they're national offerings okay. now this sets up an important principle that is used all throughout the Bible when God deals with Israel and frankly us and it is that he deals with us on both an individual level and on a corporate level. A group level. That corporate level could be the church. That is like all believers. But could be as a nation. America, Great Britain, France. Okay. When we read end times prophecies we'll read of God making a distinction among individuals, won't we? For instance, he says he's going to put a mark on the foreheads of certain people. Chosen person by person for the purpose of keeping them safe and for the purpose of identifying those who will be saved as opposed to the unmarked who will be damned. But we also see God deal with entire nations as a group. For instance, we're told that the nations as a whole that come up against Israel, are going to be destroyed. Okay. So the burnt offering of Leviticus is a personal individual... Uh, Leviticus chapter 1, rather. Okay. Is a personal, individual offering of sacrifice and, new piece of information, It's also technically considered a food offering. Now, meat was a luxury item in the time of Moses, and it still was by Yeshua's day so while the entire animal used for a burnt offering was killed and had to be thrown onto the altar to be completely burned up that was not the case with other kinds of animal sacrifices other classes rather there was a procedure in which only certain parts of the sacrificial animal would be put onto the brazen altar to be consumed by fire then the remainder was going to be used for food Okay. And depending on the situation, it could be eaten by the priests, could be eaten by the person who brought the sacrifice, some cases by both. Okay. In fact, it was only the more well to do of Hebrews who ate meat that was not first used as a sacrifice because it was generally pretty expensive. Okay. Now let me say that again. For the average Israelite, All the meat they ate was a leftover portion of the sacrifice, even though the law had given them permission to eat meat that was not part of the sacrifice. Now, in the bird offering, the entire animal, except for the skin and certain other parts, which was given to the priests, was consumed by the fire of the altar. Now, imagine how a people who had very little meat felt each time they took a sheep or a goat or something bigger to the altar and watched it go up in flames. This was expensive. And it indeed represented a personal sacrifice for the typical Israelite family to give up such a valuable animal. These families deprived themselves to one degree or another in order to give to Jehovah what He instructed them to give. Okay. Now, the burnt offering could be used, could, could could come from a whole range of domesticated animals for sacrificing that ranged all the way from bulls to sheep, all the way down to pigeons. Okay. And the reason for this was a very practical one. Poorer people simply did not have the money or the means to sacrifice a bull or a ram. Okay. Last week I pointed out that the size of the sacrificial animal, or its inherent value, a bull usually being the largest and most valuable, a turtle dove, something like that, the least, had really nothing to do with the seriousness of a sin being atoned for, or in pleasing God more or less. Notice as well that I said domesticated animals were specifically called for as sacrificial animals. Animals that were typically grown for food purposes were the kind that had to be used on the altar. No wild animals were allowed for sacrificial purposes. You couldn't go out and kill a deer or a mountain goat and use it for a sacrifice. Now the Allah was the most common of sacrificial offerings. It was offered in the mornings and the evenings every day. And offered more frequently during the day on special holy days. And as a general rule, the sacrificial animal used had to be at least one year old, a male, and unblemished. That is, it couldn't be sickly, it couldn't be lame, deformed, injured, it couldn't be cosmetically abnormal maybe with a twisted horn or an unusual color. It had to be your best animal, as near to perfection as reasonably possible. Now here's how the ritual worked. First, the worshiper brought the animal to the tabernacle to be inspected by the priests. And the priest would make sure that the animal conformed to the requirement uh, of being without defect and Being the proper age and kind. And each worshiper would bring their animal through a large gate um, at the east end of the outer courtyard that surrounded the tent of meeting. They would stand in the northeast corner of the yard awaiting their turn. Now when a priest finally became available, as we're told in verse 4, the worshiper would lay his hands on the heads of the animals. See, Baptist didn't invent that. Now, this laying on of hands is something we could probably spend an entire lesson learning about. But generally, the idea was this. By the worshiper laying his hands onto the head of the animal before it was killed, It was an official acknowledgement that this particular animal was being assigned as the sacrifice on his behalf. And at that moment, the life of that animal was being turned over to God. The Hebrew word for this laying on of hands is semachah. And it is used most often in the Bible to refer to a person in authority who assigns somebody a task. Or it's about the transference of authority. For instance, when Moses handed the task of leading Israel over to Joshua just before he died, he laid hands on Joshua. Thus acknowledging the transfer of authority from Moses To Joshua. The same idea applies here with the sacrifice. The owner of the animal, by laying his hands on that animal, signifies that this animal has been designated for the purpose of being a sacrifice specifically on its owner's behalf. But that's not all it signified. There is this element of transferring the guilt of the animal's owner onto the animal and the laying of his hands on that animal. semachah And therefore, by transferring the guilt to the animal, the killing of that animal substitutes for the death of the worshiper. Okay? However, that meaning only applied to certain types of sacrifices. Meal, grain, grain offerings, thanks offerings, for instance, had nothing to do with sin. So, it wouldn't have been appropriate. These things weren't substitutes. Now, while the laying on of hands in certain sacrifices indicated both a transference and then a substitution, that is, the guilt or sin of the worshiper is transferred to the animal and then the animal becomes the substitute for the worshiper, it was primarily the fascinating ritual of the scapegoat. Where the transference of sin concept was, was best displayed. Okay. In the scapegoat ritual, it was from all Israel to that scapegoat that the sins of the entire nation were transferred. And we're going to study that, when, that scapegoat ritual when we get to it. Now, we do have records of other cultures of that era. Even earlier, performing very similar acts for similar reasons. For instance, we have records of the ancient Hittite culture where a woman, hoping to become pregnant, would touch the horn of a fertile cow in hopes of transferring the fertility of the cow to herself. Now, though we're not told so, it's very likely that some type of prayer... Was said, or a psalm was sung as the hands of the worshiper were laid onto that animal, probably both by the worshiper and by the attending priest. Okay. There are many biblical songs, uh, psalms rather, and other songs from the Hebrew traditions that mention burnt offerings, mentioning, mention the use the word olah in them. And likely it was one or more of those that were used. Psalms 40 and 51 and 66 were almost certainly eventually used during this portion of the sacrificial procedure. Now, I say eventually because, first of all, the Psalms, of course, weren't even written for about 300 years after the wilderness tabernacle was built. And second, because I mentioned in uh, my introduction to Leviticus, we know that the sacrificial procedure, procedures changed somewhat and they evolved a bit over the centuries. Well, after the laying on hands of the animal, it was killed. Now, interestingly, it was the worshipper, not the priest, who killed the animal. And this was accomplished at the north side of the altar. Now, probably the animal, depending on the kind, was tied to one of the four horns of the altar. All right? Then its throat was slit. Okay. Actually, what the procedure did was to cut the main artery going through the animal's neck that fed the, the brain, and thereby causing almost immediate unconsciousness and death. Okay. The Bible uses a very specific word for the slaying of that animal. It's called Shahat. Okay? And it means, its meaning rather in, uh, includes that there's a very exact way that the animal was to be slain, with the primary point being that it's as humane, painless, and quick as possible. And it was done in a manner that it would allow, very importantly, some or all of its blood to be captured in a sacrificial vessel. The blood was then offered to God and finally splashed onto the sides of the brazen altar. Well, next, the animal was skinned and then chopped up into large pieces. And typically, the worshiper was also responsible to do this task, as well as to wash the interior organs with water. But that diminished over time, and the priests and the Levites took over more and more of that task. Then the attending priest would lay the chunks of meat onto the altar, one by one, to be consumed by the fire. Now, a slightly different procedure occurs if the bird offering, the olah, is to be a bird. Because its size and anatomy makes cutting its throat and sectioning it impractical. Notice how the worshipper, the common man, performs most of the duties. And the priest just officiates. Maybe he'll catch the blood in a ritual container. It is the priest who must splash the blood on the sides of the altar. And then he puts the meat over the flames. Now, when we can visualize this scene, we begin to understand how passive and sterile our worship's activities have become. Our involvement, actual involvement in worship is usually reduced to showing up. Not so by God's plan. The worshiper was to be an active participant in worship. In this case, the sacrificing procedure. Now, what was the purpose of a burnt offering? Well, as I told you in our introduction to Leviticus, not every one of the sacrificial system's ritual sacrifices was about <laughs> sin per se. Okay, interestingly, the very first sacrifice ordained in Leviticus, the olah, was not for atonement of a sin that a worshiper had committed. Okay, at least not in the way we might typically think about it. Rather, it has to do, as verse 3 tells us, with asking God to accept you by allowing you, the worshipper who brought the sacrifice, to come near to him. Peace with God is the aim. The Allah was seen as a gift from the worshipper to God, a kind of a combination gift and ransom. And even though the olah is technically classified as a food offering, it's not that the Hebrews thought that an animal was somehow or another food for God. Rather, as I mentioned earlier, it's about the smoke that was emitted from that burning flesh that ascended upward to God in the heavens that they had in their minds. That when God smelled that smoke, What were we told at least three times in Leviticus 1? The smoke was a pleasing aroma to God. It gave him pleasure because it indicated A, that an individual was being obedient to his commands and B, because peace, shalom, was taking place. That's why it pleased him. God desperately wants men to be at peace with him. So much so that he set up this system that cost Jehovah millions upon millions of his valuable living creatures. Creatures that he dearly cared about. But mankind meant so much more to him that he, for our sakes, didn't spare even those beautiful, innocent creatures. And it pleased him to do it, to attain peace with man. And when Christ died, we're told that it pleased God for his own son to be sacrificed. Because it brought man another step closer to universal and eternal peace with God. So, it is the aroma of that smoke from the Olah that pleases God. It would not be incorrect to say that in a certain way... The smoke of that sacrifice soothed God and this allowed God to have a more favorable attitude toward that man who was making the olah. Now, let's remember that a man did not bring a burnt offering when he committed a sin. That was not the purpose. It was brought regularly for the primary reason of maintaining a good relationship with God by seeking to please Him by means of obedience to God's sacrificial system. The Olah did not remove sin, nor did it in any way change the worshiper. That is, the worshiper's own sinful nature did not become transformed as a result of the bird offering. Only God's attitude towards the sinner was changed. However, there is enough evidence in Leviticus and from the various Old Testament prophets, and even from the writers of the Psalms, that some sort of atonement-like process was taking place in the ritual of the burnt offering, the Olah. The best way I can describe it to you is that the burnt offering, the Olah, has something to do with man's overall sinful condition. Not some particular act of sin that somebody's committed. And I think that atoning probably isn't the best word for our Western culture. Because atoning carries with it the idea that something you did was brought before God, but with this ritual sacrifice, you was now wiped clean and forgiven. That's not what happened here. And it seems very clear that the burnt offering is not for wiping clean something you did. Rather, it's a gift, it's a ransom because of who you are. A creature who's very sinful in your nature. And this gift was necessary to allow us, imperfect creatures, to approach the most holy and perfect God. And Ola is a voluntary offering from an individual. It's done as a matter of the heart. It's acknowledging one's corrupt condition and it signifies complete surrender to Jehovah's justice system and his will. So as difficult as semantics can be when we're dealing with the Old Testament, I think the better way to understand the Ola is that it paves the way for reconciliation between corrupt man and perfect God. It also wouldn't be wrong to say that the burnt offering offered a kind of protection from God's wrath. Now, as one of the better examples in the Bible of the spiritual significance of the burnt offering, which occurs even before the sacrificial system is given to Moses, is the near huh, sacrifice of Isaac by his father Abraham. Okay, The, the elements are that Isaac was, a, was to be killed and burned up on an altar. And we can see from the story that this also was not about some sin or another that either Isaac or Abraham had committed. Okay, So what was it about? Right. Well, as a burnt offering, in olah, a very specific kind, it was about total surrender. It was about obedience to God on the part of the worshiper, Abraham. It also demonstrated the principle of substitution when Isaac was replaced by a ram that had its horns caught in a thicket. And the sacrifice displayed the idea of ransom. That Isaac was to be a price paid voluntarily in order that mankind could be at peace with God. Now, of course, this wasn't carried out because Jehovah stopped the process just short of Isaac's death. So, why do all this? What was the point To put Abraham and Sarah and Isaac through this horrible ordeal only to pull up short. It was both a shadow of the future Levitical sacrificial system. The Isaac incident, by the way, took place five centuries before the Exodus. And, of course, of Jesus, who would be even more future. In the end, God the Father took Abraham's role... And Yeshua of Nazareth took on Isaac's role. Only this time, Yehovah didn't stop the process. Because this was the real deal. Okay, the sacrifice of Jesus was what God had been preparing for since before he created Adam. We're going to see as we move along that the burnt offering was done in combination with other kinds of sacrifices. Particularly, if those other types of sacrifices were performed in order to atone for the commission of a specific sin. But in chapter 1, the foundational principles behind all sacrifices are being established. And chief among those principles is that a priest from the tribe of Levi must officiate. Otherwise, it's just not valid. Right, and it's actually liable to bring defilement upon the holy sanctuary if a priest doesn't officiate. This is a large departure for the thing way things were for Israel up to that point, because until these sacrificial laws were given to Moses, each Hebrew family performed their own rites and their own rituals with the senior firstborn of the family acting as sort of a family priest. The century-old, centuries-old traditions about the firstborn were now outlawed. And his duties were turned over to this newly established priesthood of Israel. By the way, we'll find out as we move along, Israel didn't really very easily accept this new reality. And the firstborns in particular didn't much appreciate all right, the loss of status that these laws of Moses took away from them and gave them to this bunch of priests. Okay. The other thing we're going to find is that only the priests are authorized to handle the blood of the sacrificial creature. Okay. Further, some amount of the blood from every sacrifice had to be captured and splashed onto the holy altar. If an animal's blood was not splashed onto the altar of the sacrifice, it may well have never taken place. didn't matter. It was invalid. Blood was the whole point of the sacrifice. Now, we've lightly covered the reason for the requirement that the blood must be splashed onto the brazen altar in some earlier lessons from Exodus, and we will cover it again. But for now, suffice it to say that it was only by means of the blood of the animal coming into contact with the altar that the holiness of that altar infected the sacrificial blood with holiness. A preeminent biblical principle of holiness is that once God declares an object or a person to be holy, that state of holiness can be transmitted from object to object, object to person, person to person, and person to object merely by means of contact. In the same way, a defiled object or person who touches an otherwise holy object or person Infects them with impurity. This is the reason that whatever is holy must be kept separate from anything that is common or defiled. What are we told over and over again? Do not join the holy with the common. What does holiness and commonness have to do with each other? We are told that over and over again. This is why holiness can be transmitted one direction and defilement can be transmitted the other. This is a biblical principle. Now, in order that the blood of the sacrificial animal be efficacious, it must somehow attain a state of holiness. Or it cannot be presented to God. Now, neither the sacrificial animal nor its blood is inherently holy. Some magic thing didn't happen when an animal was singled out as a sacrifice and its blood spilled. But that blood became holy the instant it came into contact with the brazen altar. And the incredibly holy state of that altar of God Transmitted its own holiness to the blood that had been splashed upon it. Now the blood is suitable for its purpose. Atonement. Next week we'll take up Leviticus chapter 2 and discuss the most common sacrifice of a all called in Hebrew the mencha. Okay. M-I-N-C-H-A-H. That'll do it for tonight.